Hi everyone, this is Divya for the In Common podcast, a show that explores the careers and research of academics and practitioners studying relationships between humans and the environment. In this episode, I had the pleasure of interacting with Matthew Mabel. Matthew is a conservation social scientist and is appointed as a lecturer in the Department of Geography at the University of Dodoma in Tanzania. Matthew's research uses the lens of political ecology and decolonial thinking to shed light on the systemic structures and processes driving socio-ecological injustices. His work explicitly focuses on knowledge systems, power, and politics over framings of concepts such as biodiversity conservation, protected areas, human-wildlife coexistence, and sustainability. In this episode, we discuss Matthew's work on decolonizing conservation research in Tanzania. This conversation was based on Matthew's recent work that highlights the challenges of representation and the impacts of Global North funding on conservation research in the Global South. What really resonated throughout our conversation or discussion is Matthew's balanced perspective, which was not really anti-Global North, but was rather a call to recalibrate research practices for greater inclusivity and justice. We later wrapped up our conversation by talking about Matthew's other ongoing collaboration on the project called Convivial Conservation, where he has collaborated with a large group of scholars to chart pathways for a socially just, democratic, and inclusive form of biodiversity governance. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Matthew. I hope you do too. Hi, Matthew. Thank you so much for being our guest. I am so excited to have you on our podcast. I have been lately uh, following your work and your scholarship, and uh, it resonated with me a lot, especially because I'm in my career, I'm at the point where I'm thinking about the ways I'm doing research yeah. and the implications that it might have. So I'm really happy to to have this chance to uh, to have a conversation with you. So thank you so much for, for joining us. And uh, in addition to, like, we will get into the, the depths of your research later in this episode. But uh, I wanted to start out by asking you, what were some of the, you know, like uh, one of the conversations that I had with you earlier, uh, you described yeah. yourself as a conservation social scientist. So yeah. I want to start out this conversation by asking you what were some career decisions and choices that you made that led you to where you are right now? Yeah. Yeah. So thank you very much, Adivia, for having me in this uh, podcast and conversation. I'm also quite looking forward to it. So yeah. So my name is Matthew Mabel. And as you have said, um, I'm working as a conservation social scientist at uh, the University of Dodoma in Tanzania, where I teach as a lecturer. So going back to sort of starting the conversation to what you have just um, pointed out. So I was trained as a geographer. So I did my bachelor in geography and environmental studies. And, uh, and I remember when I was in first year, I was introduced in this course, it was called Introduction to Human Geography. There was a tutor who now is one of my sort of mentors she taught us this introduction to human geography, and she was uh, one of the first voices, critical voices that I've read during my undergrad years. So, and then later on, in, when, I was, when I was doing my master's, so in, in graduate school, 
where I did a master's in sort of an interdisciplinary science. So it was inter interdisciplinary ecology. So it was uh, basically trying to understand how to do natural resource management. And my focus was pretty much on forestry. And there also, I was introduced to another critical um, scholar who later became my uh, master's supervisor. His, his name is Professor Fauci Maganga. And through him, I was introduced to political ecology. Through him, he had a project which was called Politi the Political Ecology of Forest Governance and Wildlife in Tanzania. And I was working with Atoll Benjaminson, an editor of uh, Political Geography, the Journal of Political Geography. So we had a, a short course on political ecology. So that was the moment that was introduced to fully being sort of a critical literature on, on a geography, but also particularly on conservation. So I would say uh, having such a critical uh, voices and critical people early in my career sort of uh, helped. But also at one point, I remember while I was doing my master's, because as I've said, I did an interdis interdisciplinary master's. So it was a sort of a mix. I think it is, it is one of the first in Tanzania in terms of trying to mix between um, ecology and the social science perspectives. And having such uh, voices like uh, Fossi Maganga, my master's supervisor, was very helpful in terms of integrating this. Because in Tanzania, much of the conservation discipline is pretty much focused on natural sciences. So that master's program was one of the first in Tanzania. And I think I was just lucky to be there. And then that made it quite easier for me. And then when adding to knowing these critical people like uh, Maganga, Professor Noe, and then Benjaminson, and then later on, I came to know Danny Brockington, reading mm -hmm. some of early works in Tanzania. So that sort of put uh, me in the position to thinking, how can I fit myself in all these conversations? So when I went to my PhD, and then Dan Brockington was also my, was my co-supervisor. So that made it easy for me to transition to identify myself as a conservation social scientist. You know, because I've passed through all these dynamics and um, people and their literature. But also, most importantly, is the understanding that conservation has been sort of causing a lot of negative social consequences, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in Tanzania. But the thing is, the policies are still blaming the people for causing all this destruction. You know? So that sort of uh, also motivated me to thinking about how uh, we can um, sort of bring these social science insights and perspectives into the conversation. Yeah, so that, that is what I can say, how I transitioned myself into being a conservation social scientist, and um, I pretty much enjoy being that. What I'm hearing from you, that how you... We're really fortunate to come across these amazing scholars yeah. whose, whose work really helped shape your interest and also your career path. Yeah, because as I've said in Tanzania, our training is pretty much, especially the conservation and our environmental mm -hmm. studies, it's um, very much focused on the natural science perspectives. Right. So, yeah, so meeting such people, it's, it's mm -hmm. very influential. If, if, one can identify him or herself as a conservation scientist because it's not that much in Tanzania. Yeah, absolutely. And and that also kind of like you know, resonates with me, Matthew, because again, you know, coming from the global south country in India, I mean, I grew up originally in India and uh, mm -hmm. 
And uh, in India too, we have the similar kind of experience, at least the time when I was going to college, that conservation was mostly about natural sciences and, and social science didn't really, I, I don't think it was it was explored much, but I'm curious, like, you know, just hearing mm. from you that given that the norm in your country, yeah. that given that the norm was that social science was not really, was, was not really like matured, and was not really yeah. like you know, integrated in conservation. Yeah. What got you interested in becoming, in pursuing and studying and understanding the political ecology and the social perspective of conservation versus like, you know, what the norm was, which was yeah. mostly like, you know, natural sciences? Yeah, so um, there are several issues, uh, but, uh, but I'll say one is that, so as I've said, doing my PhD, that's, I think that's where I fully got to understand myself as sort of a, a conservation social scientist. And because so Tanzania is one of those countries in the world that has been extensively researched on conservation issues. Mm-hmm. You know, so trying to, to find a position sort of or a niche for yourself as a researcher and as a, as a scholar was very important for me. So after, you know, after getting this awareness of such a dominance of these natural science perspectives, but also much of the critical conservation studies have been done much by foreign researchers, and not mm-hmm. Tanzanian yeah. researchers. It was a bit easier for me to put myself in such position because I, I saw mm. that as yeah, because much of uh, critical research is done by foreigners and not by, by locals because of right. the people that I've just told you. So it was yes. a bit um, easier, I would say, because of mm-hmm. such, a, such, a, such a dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and that is a great segue to my questions about the current research that you are working on. One of the yeah. research that, that really inspired and that really struck me was this research on uh, knowledge production, like decolonizing knowledge production. And yeah. uh, and when I was reading this article, I was again really blown away just looking at the statistics. You, know, you talked about yeah. how there's barely any representation of Tanzanian scholars in the conservation scholarship that is coming out of Tanzania. I would I would love to hear from you about this this research that you have been working on and and if you can like you know just like share with us one like what got you started on this work and then also like you know some of the critical findings. Okay. So as you have said um so this was or is still a sort of a collaborative work that we are, we are doing with our colleagues here in the, in, at the University of Dodoma. So uh, we have colleagues and in my department, part of the Geography and Environmental Studies, and then also colleagues from the Department of Conservation Biology, where we sort of are working together. And um, so this just came out of the understanding. I saw a paper from, I think it was the Journal of Conservation Letters, and. Uh, no, it was Conservation Science and Practices, this journal, mm-hmm. sort of a sister journal of conservation biology. And uh, the highlight on this the so-called parachute science, the, the tendency of these northern researchers going to the southern global south to do research, but with, uh, without sort of a long-lasting impact on the local collaborators. So, and then once I, once I saw that, and then I thought um, that such analysis are sort of um, missing within a particular country. 
And then we are just lucky that we had a colleague who was sort of who was aware of this um, method called the geometric analysis. So, so we, so, and then we had, we, we had, we had people who are aware of this method, and then uh, we had people who are aware of the conversation about this and eco research collaborations. So it just joined together in terms of trying to think if we can do such an analysis at Tanzanian level, at a country level, and, and I think we thought that could be quite an important contribution in the discussion. And then uh, that's how we started uh, the, the, the conversation, and then that led to, to that paper. It was just out of this understanding uh, that uh, we have this uh, the global level such uh, analysis that shows um, you know the, the tendencies of parachute science, but we are missing uh, in Tanzania being one of the countries in the world that has been researched much on conservation issues. You know, so mm -hmm. we thought we could bring some important contribution, highlighting on these statistics and, um, and and sort of moving the conversation forward, which I think was important for us. Yeah, so that's how this um, started. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this might sound like a very naive question, Matthew, but I wonder if you had any insight about what might be the the conditions that is facilitating this kind of like you know, what you call parachute science to continue to exist in your country? Yeah, so I mean, there are, there are different uh, ways. There are both uh, sort of uh, internal and external uh, structural and systemic forces that are that have led to that uh, persistence despite mm -hmm. all these uh, efforts. So I would, I would think of internal structural and systemic forces that have led to sort of uh, this unequal, sometimes an unethical research collaboration. Is that um, currently, I think over the last maybe 20 plus years, there have been a surging, a massive intake of university uh, students in Tanzania. So. So most of the teaching programs here at the universities are we have huge number of students. Mm -hmm. While the staff ratio, the student staff ratio hasn't been very good. What does that mean when you say student staff ratio is not good? I mean the number of staff is hasn't been increasing as the number of students. Mm, so okay. having the number of students increasing while the number of staff is not increasing. Actually, mm -hmm. in some cases it is increasing because professors are getting retired, and mm -hmm. then we have uh, quite, so the transition between a retired professor and the upcoming professors hasn't been that good since the structure adjustment programs in the, the late 1980s, when the mm -hmm. government stopped, sort of uh, stopped spending uh, much, reduced expenditure, and education was one of the sectors that was affected. You know? uh -huh. so, so there's a big gap between the retired professors and the upcoming academic staff. So that has led to this, this ratio to be very bad. You know, mm -hmm. So, and then for that, it, it means you have few staff who have massive workload. So that in most of the cases, they have no enough time to do research. So that is a dynamic that exists in Tanzania. So when it comes to northern global northern researchers coming to do research in Tanzania, in some in most of the cases, they don't understand such a dynamic. So they might think that maybe these people are lazy or something. So even trying to to be just self-conscious that I need to put some efforts to engage in such a person because this person is having massive workload. So you just need to be conscious and be self-reflective and reflexive on how you can engage such a person. But in most of the cases, it happens that uh, local collaborators are not engaged as fully 
as, it, as it's supposed to be when it comes to the final research process, I mean, the writing process. Mm -hmm. That's why you find um, quite few uh, local uh, Tanzanians appearing in this uh, conservation literature because of mm -hmm. one such dynamic. You know, the massive workload that has, has taken place since uh, uh, the last 20 years. Now, because, for instance, in analysis, we have indicated that in the, in the late 70s to 1980s, Tanzanians were very productive. They are very productive. I mean, in analysis, most of the productive authors in conservation mm -hmm. literature were Tanzanians uh -huh. in the 70s and the 80s. But that's what started changing. Yeah. You know, because at that time, even the number of students, the ratio was very good. You know, uh, okay. Students, okay. They had more time to do research. They had few students, and then they had more time to do research. But mm -hmm. after the structural adjustment programs with all these changes, and then you know the free education and the cost sharing, and then having many students in, in, being enrolled in universities, and then you have many retired professors, but few upcoming professors and few upcoming you know junior academics. And then you have many junior academics with a massive teaching workload, having less time to do research, and then that's when they become less productive. And then at that time, it's also the time when we are with all these global interests in biodiversity conservation, Tanzania being one of the global biodiversity hotspots in the world, it is attracting more researchers from the global north. So at that time, also, we have massive increase of researchers from the north doing research in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. you know, that's, so that's why you see from the 19, from the 1990s, that's where you see foreign researchers being more productive than mm -hmm. the local researchers because of such a change in such a dynamic. You know? So, so I would say that is one of an internal structural force that has led to such an ethical and, and, and eco and uh, having less Tanzanian in the conservation literature. But again, for the for 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 the matter of the external. A structural and systemic force. I would, th I would think of the source of financing, source of funds. So much mm -hmm. of the conservation funding in Tanzania has been outside. So this mm -hmm. has been, again, the reason being Tanzania being a biodiversity hotspot, so that it has been attracting a lot of funding from outside. You know, so funding agencies such as Natural Science Foundation, the US, the yeah. Economic side uh, and the social research transfers in the UK and all these um, global northern research funding agencies pouring funds to do research and, and also the Danish Council in Denmark. You know, so, and, and the thing is, all these northern research funding agencies, one of the conditions that um, the principal investigator has to be someone from that particular country. So that also has implication on what it means to be even in this conservation literature, you know, because most of the time you find this principal investigator appearing and the first author in most of these uh, outputs and in all, all, most of the cases you have uh, PhD students who are funded from mm -hmm. this uh, Global Northern University coming to do research in Tanzania out of this funding from their, from their countries. You know? so, so that is an external systemic uh, structure that has led to such an econ and ethical knowledge production in, in Tanzania. So yeah, so think of those yeah. two as so for, for, for our discussion. No, that's that's great. I mean, it's nice that you mentioned one of the like key external factor and also like an internal factor that is influencing the representation of Tanzanian scholars in conservation mm -hmm. research. Again, at the cost of asking, again, another naive question, Matthew. Yeah. 
when you were describing about the way the funding in conservation science works, how there's a lot of funding uh, that is coming from global north country. Yeah. You know, you mentioned NSF, National Science Foundation, and Danish organizations of funding sources, and and just like that, there's so many, there's so many funding agencies that are funding conservation research in the global south. I mean, in this conversation, we are focusing on Tanzania. Yeah. And that makes me think that what is wrong with that? We need knowledge in conservation. We need more research in conservation in Tanzania. Mm-hmm. So so what is wrong with the, the Global North organization or funding agencies funding research projects to, to mm-hmm. produce knowledge around conservation? I mean, we know that funding is a constraint in a lot of techno global south countries because yeah. of which they are not able to like, you know, fund research. Yeah. But then I'm wondering, like, given that the, the Global North, they have the resources. Yeah. That's why, like, you know, they're able to fund research projects to produce knowledge around conservation. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's supposed to be for a good cause. I, I know that you mentioned that the condition is that the PI of the project should be somebody who's residing in the Global North. And that sort mm-hmm. of, like, affects the representation but I was wondering, yeah. like, you know, what your thoughts are on the importance of funding for research projects. And given that the reality is that there is yeah. lack of funding in the global south. So yeah. if the global north is funding research, conservation research in Tanzania, yeah. what can be done to make things right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it is not, there's no, it is not bad for the funding agencies from the global north to provide funding for research mm-hmm. in Tanzania and other global, uh, global southern countries. But the thing is, some of these existing practices have been problematic. Mm-hmm. And, and that has sort of um, been associated with, first of all, the funding agencies themselves, but also the academic institutions in the global north. So I would, first, I would, I would talk of this in terms of uh, the, the, the funding agencies themselves. They have not been fully committed in terms of having this ethical and um, eco guidelines when it comes to how to make use of the produced knowledge, how to mm-hmm. make use, but also mm-hmm. how to disseminate the produced knowledge. So it has been, there have been not much, there hasn't been much attention on the issues of uh, data justice among the funding agencies, but also uh, in terms of who are going to be. Sort of the producers of the knowledge, but also who are going to disseminate the knowledge, what sort of platform for knowledge dissemination, and, and so on. So that has led to such uh, practices where you have funding agents providing funding for uh, global northern researchers, and then at the end of the day, the same researchers are the ones who are going to be producing and disseminating the knowledge without sort of uh, involving and including the local collaborators. No. So that is the thing because. There haven't been much attention to ethical and uh, eco guidelines, but also attention to data issues of data justice, you know, which is very important when it comes to this ethical and eco collaboration. So it's not bad to have funding from them, but you just yeah. need to have attention on this ethical and eco guidelines on how to involve the local collaborators. Because, I mean, as we discussed in, you know, in one of our, of our early conversations, is that uh, I believe when most of us, in, um, I mean, most of my colleagues who are working together, we believe that um, the research process doesn't start in the writing stage. It starts in the, you know, the actual, the actual field when you collect data. Having people that have also helped 
we have collaborated in collecting the data. I think it's also very important having such people even in the writing stages, mm -hmm. having them included in authorship. But that has not been very much given attention by the research funding agencies, you know, because they believe they also follow some of these journal guidelines where authorship criteria is based on the contribution in the writing process, but not contribution in the research process from the field and data collection and so on. So I think um, that's that's one of the ways that we, have, we believe that can help to, to disrupt such an ethical and equal practice that can, can that has been occurring. You know, so that is one. But two, in terms of the academic institutions uh, in the global north, global northern countries, some of these requirements also having been done my PhD in, in the global northern university. So I know some of these requirements, especially for PhD students. And as I've said, much of this funding, this is funding also do fund PhD students who are coming from the global northern universities. So some of these requirements actually they are sort of a, a disincentive for equal and ethical collaboration because they require a PhD student who does research in, in a global southern country to have sort of a sole authorship in the manuscript or in the publication. You know, so that also becomes problematic because, I mean, how is it possible for a foreign researcher to come to Tanzania as a PhD student, do fieldwork and collaborate with a local partner, but at the end of the day, and then just end up with a sole authorship in the, in the, in the manuscript and in the, in the journal article. You know, so that goes to some of these requirements that are within the academic university, the academic institution at Global North, which I think you also might also need some fundamental changes if you want to have this um, equal and ethical collaborations in this um, conservation research. So, yeah, so that's, those are two issues that I can I think of um, for, for this mm -hmm. discussion. Yeah, yeah. no. No, I mean, I mean, this is really helpful to think about how there has to be some like rethinking yeah. in terms of like you know, the ethical practices. Yeah. And I agree, like uh, my, one of the courses that I'm teaching this semester, it's called uh, Natural Resource Equity in the Global South. Okay. And in that and in that course, like, you know, often this conversation around funding comes up, like, you know, a lot of funding comes from the global north and the funding is yeah. needed. What do we do? Mm -hmm. Because the problem with the funding is that it creates some kind of hierarchy and power dynamics wherein the funder has more authority. And, yeah. it's, and it's the same, like the, the same kind of observation is coming out of what you just described that because the, the funding agencies are all like mostly based in the global north, they get to dictate the terms and the conditions of the research. Yeah. And that invent, that eventually influences the knowledge that is produced yeah. and also the, the the process of knowledge production. Process, yeah, exactly. And in your conversation or in your narrative, you are trying to question and, and be yeah. skeptical about that process of knowledge generation. Yeah. And and you are trying to sort of like you know bring to light that how these practices they have to be changed so that yeah. there is they, they are just and they are equitable yeah. so that people yeah. who are involved in that process are equally represented, reflecting the reality of what that research looked like and what the data collection mm -hmm. and everything, the fieldwork looked like. I mean, so my question to you is, Matthew, that given that you are sensitive to this like, you know, lack of representation of Tanzanian mm -hmm. scholars in conservation research, what are you doing to be sure that 
you're not making the same mistakes that a lot of the conservation scholars have been making. Because I feel that this coloniality in conservation is something that is not limited to scholars in the global mm. north. I yeah. feel like scholars of global south, we can also mm. fall into the same pattern yeah. and, and be exclusionary in our practices. Mm. Yeah. So I want to know, like, you know, given that you are sensitive and, and you are mm. mindful about these practices, mm. what are you doing differently in the way you do your research and writing? Oh, yeah. So uh, there are several ways that I actually I'm also sort of also learning. So it's mm-hmm. a learning a learning process for, for most of us. But um, actually, the, 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 the paper that we just mentioned, it's, it's one of the first uh, output of our learning, sort of our learning project. It's truly a collaborative output. And the paper is with all Tanzanians in the, in the paper but also people from different, um, despite the fact that most of us are coming from the same department, we are from different disciplines. You know? So there are geographers, there are wildlife ecologists, there uh-huh. are people that are economics and um, conservation biologists. You know? So and I think that's part of you know, the process of decolonizing conservation you know? and mm-hmm. making, it, making conservation more inclusive in terms of uh, different uh, perspectives from different um, disciplines, but also having different representation. So that is one of the one of the learning process that we are I'm trying to engage in in terms of trying to be more collaborative in writing, especially with conservation being a very much uh, an interdisciplinary field. It's sort of um, I think that it makes more sense to for it to be more collaborative mm-hmm. because of the nature of the field. And that's what um, I'm trying to do in terms of trying to be collaborative. So trying to sort of gather colleagues here in Tanzania to thinking mm-hmm. along on these same questions and concerns. You know? mm-hmm. so, so that is one of the first uh, products of our learning project. And yeah. uh, I think um, um, we also many are coming in terms of trying to engage with other colleagues. So now we are thinking of engaging with other colleagues from, from these traditional universities where they are very much conservative in thinking about conservation. So that's the next stage. But also, we are also trying to do, in our project, in our learning project, we're also trying to engage in sort of uh, decolonizing curricula. So mm-hmm. we also, that is also part of activities that we're doing. We actually started designing a, a, a curricula for one of these universities, this traditional university where they teach uh, first professionals and wildlife professionals. And uh-huh. So we are trying to engage the curricula to have more uh, critical voices, critical mm-hmm. presentation in terms of uh, the underlying assumptions that mm-hmm. inform the, the conservation. And that's because, I mean, part of the colonial legacy in conservation in Tanzania is also rooted in the conservation training, how these mm-hmm. professionals are trained. They are right. still trained the colonial and assumptions about the relationship between people and natural environment. Mm-hmm. So. Part of the project, what we are doing also, are trying to bring uh, such critical voices as, as sort of um, one of the things that we're trying to do differently and to have more, more impact. Because we believe mm-hmm. by training these people, these professionals, when, once they have diverse understanding of the nature, human nature interactions, I think that would be also a very important step in decolonizing conservation. Otherwise, 
if they still have professionals the same colonial mentality, right. we just keep producing colonial legacies from the Tanzanians, as mm-hmm. you have said, you know, just Tanzanians being colonial themselves. So yeah. we need to dismantle that uh, legacies from the learning, you know, from the learning university training, and that is part of what we're doing. You know, so yeah, so that, those are some of the issues that we, we are trying to do differently in terms of uh, this uh, individual, at the individual level, trying to collaborate more with uh, different people, different disciplines, but also at more institutional level, trying to think uh, how we can bring more critical voices and diverse perspectives into uh, training of these conservation professionals. Yeah. So yeah, mm-hmm. so those are the two issues. Matthew, there is so much to unpack in what you just said. There's so much to unpack. You talked about decolonizing curriculum. You talked about really being mindful in including interdisciplinary scholars you know, in your collaboration. And you also yeah. talked about dismantling these like, you know, colonial practices or the colonial legacies. And I want to like, I hope I have time to unpack all of these things that you've highlighted, but I want to start out with this question of like, so earlier in your conversation, you mentioned that, you know, mm-hmm. how in your writing, you're collaborating with Tanzanian scholars. Yeah. Is that a conscious decision where you're just like, you know, focusing on teaming up with the with the scholars in the global south or in, with the scholars in Tanzania? I'm wondering, like, how does this decision of collaborating with the Tanzanian scholars yeah. affect your thinking and your sort of like approach towards collaborating with the global, with the scholars in the global north? Yeah, I mean, um, no, I mean, um, I still do work with uh, colleagues from the global <laughs> north. It doesn't mean that I want to work with them. But uh, but as, as you said, it's also just a self-conscious decision because uh-huh. they are sort of behind, you know, so... So we are trying to push ourselves into mm-hmm. the discussion we, because we have been very much behind the discussion. And especially from, from a country where a lot of research is are done by researchers from the global north. So we are, we are just trying right. to push ourselves into the discussion. But, uh, but that yeah. doesn't mean that we cannot work with the global northern researchers. We are still working with them. But and um, I think I'm just lucky or I'm very fortunate to have colleagues from the Global Northern Universities who are also very conscious about this. Right. So they're even sort of, like I mentioned, like uh, one of my mentors and my who was my PhD co-provider, Danny Brockington, is also very conscious about this. You know, so yeah. even sometimes encourage such a, such a practice because they have dominated for quite some time. So now we just need uh, to have our voices into the discussion being heard. So, but doesn't mean that we cannot work with uh, the colleagues from the Global Northern Universities. We are still working uh-huh. with them. And actually, apart from working with the colleagues from Tanzania, also we are also mm-hmm. trying to be more self-conscious about working with colleagues from other global southern countries. Right. Because we are also being behind. It's not only about Tanzania, but it's also about Brazil, about India, and so mm-hmm. on. So we also have. I mean, we have. Um, I have colleagues from Brazil. And uh, maybe I didn't, I did not mention this, but uh, we have a working group called Decolonizing Conservation. Oh, uh, nice. so I, yeah, I'm, co- I'm co-coordinating with a colleague from Brazil. She's called mm-hmm. Laila Sandron. She's also sort of a critical social scientist. Mm-hmm. So, and this working group has members from different parts of the world, and they were trying to have more members from the global southern countries. And also, we have members from Brazil, we have members from Cambodia, from many parts in Africa, from Zimbabwe, from Uganda, 
just trying to bring more voice into this conversation, more voice from the global south and researchers. That's what we are doing. But we are also keen in collaborating with global northern researchers, but under the condition that the collaboration should be equal and ethical. Apart from that, I think we, need, we just need to, to avoid such collaborations because we just want to have this, this kind of uh, collaboration. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And a related question that I have, Matthew, is that like you know, oftentimes when you're trying to be in- inclusive and you when you're trying to like you know, diversify your collaboration or part- partnership, what ends up happening is that there is a certain level of like you know tokenization or patronization, mm. like you know, wherein yeah. the inclusion is there because of their background or their color yeah. of the skin or the ethnicity yeah. and things like that. Yeah. How yeah. do you think one should deal with situations like that? Um, I think I believe they, they, for more interest to, to be more inclusive and you know having more voices and presentation from the former marginalized researchers, I think that's supposed to be based on merits. That is just be based on merits because otherwise, as you pointed out, the, the tokenization, I think it doesn't really help. Because if it's based on merits, and then uh, it's going to have even longer lasting impact on the individual, but also even the institution that the individual is coming from. So yeah, so that would be my 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 thinking. It's supposed to be based on merits and not on um, yeah. just because you are from the global south or because you are Tanzanian or because you mm-hmm. are a female, because you are just a black or individual, whatever that social identity might be. No, it's supposed mm-hmm. to be based on merits, and that is going to be. Uh, effective because that's going to make a longer lasting impact and for, right. for 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 the for the need for the inclusion yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i i raised this because like the whole conversation around dei diversity yeah. it's become pretty much a fad especially yeah. in academic institutions yeah. wherein you yeah. come across these these instances where you feel that it's just for the heck of it you know they are talking about diversity and inclusion just for the heck yeah. of it and because yeah. they've created this criteria, they, they want to like you know make sure that they check this box. Yeah. So I, I feel that in that in those situations, it's the the person's like color and their background that mm. becomes the criteria versus like their merit and their qualification that becomes like a yeah. second priority. Yeah. And and, and yeah. I agree with what you say that merit is important. But then again, yeah. I feel that is there anything else that can be done like in order to make this process of inclusion more genuine versus like just something on the paper. So once you have um, someone who is capable, someone mm-hmm. who can really question these problematic practice, uh, practices and problematic ethics within particular institution, mm-hmm. and then that is going to be the sort of the voice for change. Because if we're just going to have someone because based on his or her social identity, and then might end up having just someone as a seat, as I've said, someone who yeah. can't question these uh, ethics and problematic practices. But once you have someone who is as married, so someone who can question such um, institutional practices, and then that is what we need in terms of having diversity yeah. and inclusion. Someone mm-hmm. who can question the practices from within, not just someone yeah. who can just have a number in the mm-hmm. institution and then, and then just say, oh, our institution is, is diverse and inclusive because we have this person. But a person who cannot even question such of this, uh, some of those are problematic um, ethics and practices. So that's that's I think that's very important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, yeah. another related question that I have, Matthew, is that 
it always baffles me that you know these issues that we are talking about these issues around representation issues around yeah. diversity and inclusion are yeah. issues that have been there in the system for such a long time yeah why i'm just like wondering like why has the global conservation community been so reticent in talking about these issues for all this while and and why is it now like you know until very recently it's these are the conversations that we are having yeah. very recently so i'm wondering like why have these conversations not emerged um, mm. earlier and and why now yeah i would just think of um maybe um several reasons i believe one might be but um especially when i think of sometimes i think there's also sort of lack of uh, contextual understanding of some of these um people from the global northern institutions and universities but even from the global northern funding um, agencies they tend to lack um the the social and the historical and even ecological context of these um global southern countries where they provide funding but also where they collaborate so because of, so i believe there's also a need of sort of capacity building for some of these uh, global northern um, institutions and even academics mm-hmm. we not think of institutions such as the iucn you no know, being a, a massive institution that has massive impact on global south and uh, the kind of institution that makes uh, policies for conservation policies for global southern countries and we see that uh, some of the people that were sitting in this institution are lacking the historical and the ecological and social contextual understanding of these countries so for that matter even speaking of these inequalities and uh, sort of uh, problematic practices i mean they can't because they lack such an understanding you know? mm-hmm. so that that may be one of the reasons but also the other reason i would think of i think it is just an uncomfortable conversation because i mean you you are put in a position to sort of uh, be pointed fingers at because you are part you might be part of the problem so for someone to talk about it it just needs someone who is very self conscious and reflective of the practices that has he has or she has been engaging i remember there was this uh, the polling polling conference the political ecology mm-hmm. network mm-hmm. i think it was 2016 yeah there's this american um, anthropologist uh, page west She's a professor at Columbia. Mm-hmm. I think she gave a, a keynote speech, and uh, she pointed her fingers at um, some of these very dominant uh, white male uh, academics who have been very dominant in conservation literature. It was very uncomfortable, but uh, I think um, some of those male researchers were um, sort of self-conscious, so they understood what Paige West was talking about in terms of their dominance in conservation literature. being them from being um, them being males from global northern countries doing research in global southern countries so she mm-hmm. just raised that, such such a dynamic so it's very uncomfortable for people who cannot be self conscious that's why i find that maybe it's not much discussed within that mm-hmm. um, sphere of the conservation cycle but uh, but for those who are conscious they have started having this conversation as i just mentioned some of the few names that have been a part of this but also i think the last reason that i remember we are discussing when we were, once i was a phd student in, in switzerland i and my colleagues from the global southern countries i had colleagues from nepal colleagues from tajikistan and we are discussing several times about 
researchers from the Global Northern Universities being having some authority over a particular country. So it mm-hmm. is sort of an authority because that person has been doing research in that country for many years. So it's also sometimes they cannot discuss because it's also a matter of protecting such an authority because once we discuss about inclusion and diversity, and then it means you are threatening such an authority because you are trying to bring other voices into the conversation. So I think those might be reasons why you, you, you see that um, it hasn't been that much discussed, but, but of course it's changing. For people who are very self-conscious, they are starting making this conversation because it's, uh, it's, it's quite important. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really interesting. And you know what, Matthew, what I'm sensing from what you just said is also that these are uncomfortable and difficult conversations. Yeah. And uh, what I just like heard from you, especially when you mentioned this example of you know the keynote lecture at yeah. this Poland conference, that these uncomfortable conversations, it seems like they become more, they gain more credibility when they are raised mm. by people or the scholars in the global northern institutions yeah <laughs> and i could be wrong i mean that's the kind of like you know sense that i got that that the yeah. credibility of these issues become or, the, or these these issues they become more salient when they are raised by the scholars yeah. in the global north and that i think in a way goes on to say that how the colonial mindset is still entrenched it's yeah, still very exactly. much entrenched yeah there is some level of authority that is associated with certain kind of institutions that are in a certain part of the world. And yeah. then it's only when those voices, when they emerge from that dominant part of the world, that they become integrated in these like, you know, global narratives and discourses. Yeah. yeah, because I mean, as maybe also from India, I also believe that uh, this kind of conversation in Tanzania has sort of surfaced in the lower voices for quite some time. But now they are just taking up attention because they have been also being spread at these um, higher levels. You know, but mm-hmm. I mean, um, it's just also a representation of what you've just said in terms of this uh, still uh, the colonial quality and mindset that are still looming. The believability this. of these issues become yeah. more when it's raised when by... at a higher, sort of higher level yeah. talks about it. Yeah, but yeah, yes. yeah you get that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The other part of the conversation that we had earlier was like, mm. you know, you talked about your efforts around decolonizing the curriculum. And then I find yeah. really interesting that, you know, how you're yeah. also working towards redesigning these practices. You're trying to yeah. affect or influence in redesigning yeah. the, the practices. And what I really liked about that uh, when you were explaining in your effort around decolonizing curriculum is when you talked about that, how in your work, you're also trying to challenge the colonial assumption around human-wildlife interaction. Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, you know, if you can elaborate a bit on that, like how and in what ways are you decolonizing the curriculum? And what has your experience been like? Yeah, so as I've said, it's, it's an ongoing project that um, actually started um, from my PhD project because in my PhD as a sort of um, pointed out in the discussion, uh, one of the objectives was trying to sort of uh, historicize the colonial legacies in the forest uh, policies and practices. But also, that also took me to 
one of the universities in Tanzania where first professionals are taught. It's, it's called mm -hmm. Sokoine University of Agriculture. It's the, it's the only university that uh, teaches um, professional forestry. So at the bachelor level and master's level. Uh -huh. um, and it, um, yeah, so and the, the main assumption that they see root, it's, it's still rooted into scientific forestry that was designed in 18th century uh, Germany. You know, mm -hmm. and uh, it's, it's based on the concept of sustainable yields, which was a concept that was developed at the time for for in the industrial development. You know, so it was a concept that was aligned to the the context at that time in Germany where they're trying to have industrial development. So they had to sort of develop enclosures of forest to make sure that they have sustained timber yields for the industrial development. Mm -hmm. So, but that is. That was uh, imported into Tanzania with uh, the, the German colonization in 18, 1891 when the German came and introduced this uh, forest ordinance that brought this antique forest in Tanzania. And it is the time when they started labeling local uses as being destructive to forest and natural processes. And that's where they started labeling uh, local use such as uh, shifting cultivation, uh, charcoal making, Livestock grazing has been destructive to natural processing in the forest ecosystem. Unfortunately, this kind of assumptions are still being taught today in the 21st century in, 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 at the university in Tanzania. It is also unfortunate that um, they imported such uh, ecological science, which is rooted in a di very different uh, forest ecosystem. Because in German, we are talking about a temperate forest ecosystem in Tanzania. Is quite a different. It's a tropical forest ecosystem, a forest ecosystem that are very, uh, having these uh, dry uh, forest um, uh, formations, and uh, but also forest ecosystem that have people that uh, directly depend on them for their livelihood sustenance. So the idea of separating people from nature it mm -hmm. cannot work as it worked in Germany, but in Tanzania it cannot work because people still depend on this ecosystem. For their livelihood, they need to have land for farming, land for livestock grazing. They need to have space to make charcoal as an important energy um, for, for, for cooking in urban areas. So all of this made to think um, about how we can change that as part of the decolonization, because it's just a part of the colonial legacies. So the assumption is that first of all, we need to have we need to go back to our roots in terms of bringing back the indigenous knowledge, you know, because these were considered to be not as rational or scientific. They are mm -hmm. considered to be sort of subjective. So they are just opinions. They are not facts or so, sort of um, stuff. So we need to bring them back into our teaching because they are missing the, the teaching. So that is one of the first steps of doing that. But also the second step is also to integrate the critical social sciences insights because uh, uh, they bring the opportunity for conservation professionals to understand these uh, social processes and dimensions that are very important in the context of conservation in Tanzania because as I said, human and nature, they are very much connected, rooted because of the dependence of people on this uh, natural resource base for their livelihood sustenance. So we are, we are, we are decolonizing the curriculum in terms of disrupting this colonial ideals, mm -hmm. of the separation of people, of labeling local uses as destructive, 
and then you bring in back our indigenous knowledge. Because in the people, when the colonial, when Germans came, they mm -hmm. found people relating with nature in a very much um, good way. But also, this doesn't mean that we are trying to romanticize indigenous knowledge or romanticize the history, but we're just trying to bring this so that we can be able to, to have um, conservation that takes on board people's ways of uh, engaging with nature and, uh, mm -hmm. and not labeling their ways of engaging with nature as destructive because that has not been the case in most of the cases uh, as uh, some of the indigenous practices have indicated in many parts of Tanzania. For instance, I could just give one very example in terms of uh, such a positive engagement. Is because so our forest ecosystem they, they, they have quite a, a dynamic of having some of our forest ecosystems have um, quite many glasses. So by allowing livestock grazing, it acts as a way to to manage fire breaking because with grasses during the, the dry season, it means the intensity of fire becomes quite high. Mm -hmm. So what, they, what the local used to do, they allow livestock grazing so that they can minimize the grasses. When it came to the dry season, then the fire intensity is not that high because the grasses, which act as a fuel load, becomes uh, less. So even the intensity becomes less. So even the consequence of fire becomes quite less. But once you stop that, then you have very tall grasses during the dry season, then the intensity becomes quite high, and then it has more effect on the forest ecosystem. So by prohibiting livestock grazing, it means you prohibit livestock grazing being sort of a natural fire management practice that was used by the local before the Germans started labeling that as destructive. While well, it actually was not destructive, it was sort of a part of the functioning ecosystem you know so that's what we trying to bring back because luckily also science proved that is correct you know so it's just a matter of putting that into the curriculum you know, because mm -hmm. it's not there in the curriculum it's just putting that into the perspectives of the professionals so that they can understand so once they become forest rangers they can know livestock grazing is not that bad to the forest ecosystem it's actually very good sometimes because of this management so this is some of, some of the things that we are, we are doing in terms of decolonizing Kalika so that we can bring that back. Yeah, so that, that yeah. is part of it. Yeah. No, I mean, I really like this idea of highlighting the reality of what conservation or what people and these, these, these situations of like, you know, people forest kind of like look like, that how they are, that people are, Really, like you know, deeply integrated and embedded in the forest systems, yeah. and and they have it's been like that. That's one of the realities. Yeah. It's been like that to an extent that it's part of their lives and livelihoods. Yeah, and and I like like how through your examples you elaborated some of these practices that are integrated with these like the forest systems with which yeah. you know in which people are very deeply embedded and integrated. Yeah. And and I also like the idea that that your goal or your motive is not to romanticize these no. practices. Instead, it is to highlight the realities of these landscapes. Yeah. Yeah. How yeah. these practices, they have been existing for the longest time. Yeah. And probably for the conservation and to create like a you know, more sustainable landscapes or to yeah. conserve these landscapes in a more sustainable way. Yeah. It makes more sense to be mindful of these practices versus yeah. like excluding them. 
Because exclusion will probably like you know, lead to more conflict and violence and violence yeah. and uh, degraded ecosystems. So it's, and degraded uh, ecosystems. So accountable yeah. boxes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So I mean, I think it this conversation relates really well to the parallel work on convivial conversation that you're doing when yeah. you're focusing on human lion yeah. coexistence. So I would yeah. love to hear more about that. Like, what is the focus of that research and what are you and your colleagues' vision around this this initiative? Yeah, so actually the research has just ended last year. So it was uh, research that was done between 2018 and uh, till September 2022. But I mean, mm-hmm. some of the writings are still going on from mm-hmm. that project because the project was very much affected by COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So I mean, um, even our research fieldwork was very much affected by that. Yeah, so it was a collaborative project between um, universities in Tanzania, in, uh, in the UK, Netherlands, Brazil, Finland, and, uh, and the US. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the idea was to question this idea of protected area mm-hmm. as, as a colonial philosophy, because as I've said, it, it is, it's a philosophy that is built upon separating people from nature. And um, so... And that has produced landscapes that uh, are sort of uh, are not inclusive of people because mm-hmm. they are landscapes that are in sort of considered to be wilderness. So they are imagined landscapes, I would say that, because they are not landscapes that are really inclusive of people, as, as it has been the case in many uh, parts of the global southern countries, including Tanzania. So for Tanzania, we focus in in the Ruaha and Ruaha landscape, which is located in southern islands of Tanzania. And uh, so I was in, involved with um, a colleague, William Kiwango, who was a postdoc for the project and was a coordinator. And um, so our research was trying to think around how we can have a human life for existence. And uh, the, the site that we chose is one of the sites Actually, in Africa, that still has many lions in, in Africa. And, um, and, and lion is one of the very problematic animals because it holds um, yeah, predation upon the livestock, but also it can also kill people or can injure, it can kill, can, it can injure or can kill people. So it's a very problematic animal. So it was, so the project tried to focus on looking on the predator species. So in Tanzania, we looked at lion. And then in Brazil, they looked at the jaguar. Finland, mm-hmm. they looked at the wolves. And uh-huh. US, they looked at the bears as the predator species. And I think uh, because of their place in the, the food web, it was just quite important to have that as an example or as a case uh, species for the, for the project and thinking around how we can have coexistence. Mm-hmm. So in the project, we, we try to look on three aspects and trying to question on this uh, colonial philosophy. So one of the first aspects was in terms of the landscape mechanism, which, as I've said, is just separating people from nature with the creation of protected areas. And then the second aspect, we looked on the financial mechanism, which is, again, going back to funding. Much of the conservation funding comes from the global northern countries. And in the case of Tanzania, much of the conservation funds comes from tourism. You know, because in Tanzania, a nature-based tourism is one of the quite important sectors for the national GDP. So, and uh, funding from tourism also goes back to providing 
funding to addressing some of these uh, human lion conflicts. So, so in our project, we try to question that because we are saying by having these um, protected areas and then you keep on separating people from nature, that cannot work because it just produces uh, negative social consequences. And right. that cannot have, cannot have this coexistence because you can't mm -hmm. have coexistence when you have such aspiration. But then secondly, with the financing, we say with the understanding that much of the loss of biodiversity has been caused by some of the global processes, and one of them being capitalism with the extractive mm -hmm. and excessive extraction and consumption of resources in the global northern countries. So having conservation being funded by the same finances, so we just mm -hmm. need to think about alternative financing. Alternative financing that are not rooted into these capitalistic uh, sources of funding. Uh -huh. So, so for Tanzania, we we have sort of um, think we have been thinking, and we started developing what we call a community-based conservation insurance fund or insurance mm -hmm. mechanism, insurance schemes. And we are learning that from uh, northern Pakistan, where mm -hmm. they had a very good case of uh, conservation insurance fund for addressing the Snow leopard and, 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 and goats, and mm -hmm. one of the, such a conflict. So, we also are learning that in Tanzania to have this uh, community based conservation insurance fund as a, as a financial mechanism that doesn't depend on foreign sources, but also doesn't depend on uh, capitalistic sources. That's part of the blame for the loss of biodiversity in, um, in Tanzania and other parts of, of the world. You know, so, that's that's sort of um, the essence behind convivial conservation, trying to think around questioning the idea of protection of protected areas, but also questioning the idea of funding within conservation and coming up with alternative approaches that are rooted in this locally sourced finances, but also mm -hmm. the idea of what is called uh, promoted areas, which is quite different from, from ah, protected areas protected. because it, it is built on coexistence, but also it is built on some of African ethics such as Ubuntu, that because mm -hmm. Ubuntu as an ethic, it is based on promoting the care and mutual coexistence mm -hmm. between uh, people, people and nature. You know? So so that is the idea behind the convivial conservation that we are we are doing in Tanzania and they actually are still doing uh, in Tanzania. Yeah. Yeah. I mean this is such a fantastic term. I love the idea of promoted areas versus yeah. protected areas. I think it yeah. It, it conveys the, the, the sentiment behind this practice. But I also, I was blown away by how massive this project is. I thought it was only based in Tanzania, but then you talk about your collaborators and uh, yeah. partners in other parts of the world too. Yeah. How does it look like? I mean, like, yeah, I'm, I'm really curious now, like, you know, how did this start, this, this convivial conservation like project yeah. like how, how did it start and how did you all find all these like you no know, partners and okay yeah so so the idea actually came from Bram Busher and uh, Rob Fletcher you know they mm -hmm. wrote this um, uh, the conservation revolution where they introduced this idea of convivial conservation and all mm -hmm. the mechanisms that I've just said about the questioning protected areas questioning the finance of conservation and also questioning the lands and the governance of these um, conservation um, areas. So it was quite, I think it was quite an interesting project because it emanated from the book. Because mm -hmm. most of the cases, 
a book is an output of a project. But actually, uh -huh. for this case, it was a book that is started, and then, <laughs> and then the project was just trying to to question the principles and the ideals that the book or the proposal of convivial conservation is coming up with. So for the case of Tanzania, we are just trying to see the potential of some of these ideals and uh, and uh, mechanisms that Abraham and Rob are proposing. You know? mm -hmm. you know, so it was uh, out of such um, a beginning. So and then and then once they when, once we got funded, we thought of uh, questioning such potentials in different parts of the world and uh, focusing on these uh, APS data, as I've said, and um, mm -hmm. Tanzania being one of the most research countries in conservation, and then we have yeah. Brazil as also another research countries in the world. So, and then it was just about uh, gathering insights from these different um, countries into mm -hmm. whether convivial conservation can really be an alternative conservation approach to mm -hmm. the current approach which is based on protected, which is based on separating people from nature. And so that's mm -hmm. that's how this um, came about. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. this is really fascinating. And I can imagine like the really important lessons that other countries in the global south can also learn from this. I was wondering like, and I know this is a really broad question, Matthew, but I was yeah. wondering like if you were able to gather some insights and the lessons from your work that you think yeah. might be useful for the countries in the global south. Yeah, yeah. I think um, for for the discussion around the so-called um, the colonial legacies and all this um, mm -hmm. ethical and eco research um, partnership and collaborations between the global northern scholars and global southern scholars, I think I would think of sort of two maybe two lessons that can I can say for 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 the for, for the other countries. One of the lessons could be we need to to be very much conscious and question these important sciences that we still have in many of the global southern countries, important ecological sciences. Because I believe uh, that's that is one of the underlying forces for the for the persisting colonial legacies in our conservation of policies and practices in terms of the assumptions and the ideals that inform conservation policies and practices that are still much rooted in the colonial uh, sciences. So one of the first lessons would be to just keep on questioning that and keep mm -hmm. on trying to dismantle such uh, colonial sciences and legacies because that's I mean, it's, it's quite, it's, it's very difficult because it is very much embedded into institutions because, I mean, colonialism has been there for, for many years, right? So yeah. that's a matter of keeping on this questioning and keeping on trying to disrupt such a, such a legacy. But also the other thing that is sort of related to that would be trying to, from, from that, we can also gather a lesson of trying to have policies and practices that fit the social and the ecological context of a particular country. Mm -hmm. Because as I mm -hmm. said, like learning from Tanzania, having policies that and practices that fit temperate ecosystems, mm -hmm. you know, policies and practices that doesn't really fit our ecosystems in Tanzania, that can never mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. So we just need to think about how we can, as, uh, for the sake of um, conservation that caters the need of the people, but also conservation that would also keep ecological integrity. And then we need to have practices and policies that fit the, the social and ecological context of our particular countries. 
And I think um, that would be that. But also in terms of collaboration, also I'll, I'll just think of as a lesson in terms of trying to make sure that you avoid being taken for granted as a global southern researcher, because sometimes that can happen because you you just avoid being consider yourself as sort of as a weak person. You're not a weak person. Someone coming from the global northern might have better resources, but also have better contextual understanding of your particular country. So that is a resource that you have. So it's just a matter of trying to make sure that no matter how you get involved, but it has to be in a more equal and collaborative, uh, equal and ethical collaboration that um, so that you can have even more a longer lasting impact on your career, but also in your Institution, but also even in the country. So those, I think, are some of the lessons that you can just gather from from what we have just been doing. Yeah. Now these are just like really, really meaningful and really important lessons that you shared, Matthew, about questioning these practices continuously, like questioning and being skeptical of these practices, and then also not feeling weak, like especially for the scholars in the global south, for them to not feel weak. In their uh, yeah. and second guess or self doubt their capabilities and their skills, and uh, yeah. so I think I think these are all really important lessons. And and I also really like the fact that you highlighted the the relevance of how the relevance of the research to be compatible with the with the context, the social, yeah. ecological, and political context. Yeah. I mean, the conservation practice and the research will only work if it is fully compatible. With yeah. the context, so, so I think these are really meaningful, meaningful lessons. But before yeah. we break, before I wrap this up, you know, given that you're doing such an extensive work, Matthew, yeah. and you know, this interaction with you has been so inspiring for me. I'm really yeah. curious to to know what is the vision that you have, like you know, moving forward in your career. What are some of the key goals that you want to fulfill? What is the vision that you want to achieve through your work? Yeah, I think um, one of the quite important thing that I just wish that I can see happening is just the change, especially for, for, for Tanzania, but also maybe lesson to other global southern countries. Is, I think it's just the change of our conservation policies and practices. Because mm-hmm. as I said, have been for so long detrimental to the livelihoods of the people who depend on such um, um, assistance. So, and it has just been a battle for for quite for so long in terms of changing that policies and practices. Now, despite the introduction of the so-called community-based conservation approaches, participatory approaches, but because they are all still rooted in the same idea of separating people from nature, and then they are they have not been very much effective. So that is what I quite aspire in terms of seeing our conservation policies and practices are changing. The, the assumption that inform the policies and practices are changing so that they right. can have a better relevance for people, but also relevance for the ecology, you know? right. so that people's livelihoods could be sustained. You know? mm-hmm. Otherwise, we just keep on having conservation that uh, keeps on producing poor and poorer people, which mm-hmm. is something that I think I would not like to see keep on happening while I'm, I'm doing research in Tanzania and also while I'm being an, a scholar. So that's one of the quite an important aspiration that I still have, sort of as a vision to have these conservation policies and practices that would really work for people, but also work for the ecology. Mm-hmm. So 
work for both. So that's what I quite um, aspire as a researcher, but also as as an individual, I quite aspire, aspire to, to see the North and South collaboration having been more equal and ethical, but also I'm very much interested in having more South-South collaborations. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what I've said as um, the example that I've given with our working group on decolonizing conservation, working with people from the Southern countries. So that's also it's an individual aspiration, seeing more collaborations with people from global southern countries, because I think uh, we have very common contextual understanding. We have passed through very common problems, so mm -hmm. we might have quite interesting and uh, common insights that might be important for the debate uh, going forward. Yeah, so yeah, that's what I can just say. Absolutely. No, thank you so much for sharing that, Matthew. You know. Just the last thing, I know like we covered a lot of ground and I asked all of these really all kinds of questions. I asked you all kinds of like yeah. critical questions and fundamental questions and, and you were yeah. really generous and kind in, in addressing them in a very meaningful yeah. and depth manner. Yeah. I wanted to check with you if there was anything that I missed asking that you wanted to share, if there was something that you wanted to share that I did not cover in my questions. No, I mean, um, we really covered sort of um, almost everything that um, that I would just uh, imagine having this discussion. And even uh, maybe some of the things that um, came out of uh, our paper with an, an equal and ethical uh, collaboration that has been, uh, knowledge production that has been quite important. And I think that is also part of the discussion is in terms of building this equal and uh, also, you know, diversity and inclusion in conservation science and conservation literature. I think it is also a practice of um, citing more works from global southern researchers. I think that is something that I also sort of uh, also try to do in, in most of my, my work. Mm -hmm. I try to cite most of um, global southern researchers because I think that's also the ways to raise voice from, from us. And also that's because, I mean, Citation as a metric is also one of the metrics for production in academia. So by yeah. having more citation from ourselves, mm -hmm. and then also it raises our metrics and also it makes us being yeah. heard, being seen. So yeah, that is also something that, yeah, maybe I forgot to mention, but uh, that is something that also I do it as, as a, as a self-conscious to trying mm -hmm. to dismantle this an equal and ethical uh, knowledge production um, uh, platform. And, yeah. And practices. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Matthew. I cannot tell you how how grateful I am to have this conversation with you, and I genuinely appreciate all the work that you're doing to improve yeah. the visibility and also the voices of the Global South scholars. Yeah. I think it is it is really critical and it's really important, and that is something that I think even I will persevere to do. So thank you yeah. so much. I know that you know you were transitioning from your fellowship at Cambridge back yeah. to Tanzania. So and I know this is a very crazy time for you. Yeah. I'm really grateful for making this time to to chat with yeah. me. Thank you so much, Matthew, and good luck with everything. Thank you very much, Diva, for having me and uh, good luck and um, hope to have more discussion in the coming months or years about this. Absolutely. Now, I yeah. look forward to staying in touch with you. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you very much, Diva.
Thanks for listening, everyone. You can find more episodes as well as our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. In Common is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons. Thanks again for joining us. Take care.